KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The Navy orders a safety pause after fatal aircraft crashes. The smallest error in the air or the smallest problem with maintenance can lead to something really catastrophic. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Ongoing inflation could mean cloudy skies for the economy. Most economists are now expecting a recession late this year or early next year. We'll hear about a very special graduation ceremony in San Diego for students who are homeless. And a money crunch may not be the only problem facing the newly disbanded San Diego rep. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Naval flight operations have been suspended in the wake of a series of crashes in Southern California this month. All non-deployed units have been ordered to take a safety pause to review proper aviation procedures and training. Six Navy and Marine aviation crew members were killed in two crashes in the beginning of June. A third San Diego-based Seahawk helicopter crashed last week. Luckily, the crew survived. Joining us with more detail on paused flight operations is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome back. Hi, Maureen. Tell us about these fatal crashes this month. Were both in Southern California? Well, I mean, we had two crashes in a week involving military aircraft. We had an Osprey crash in the California desert near Glamis, California. That's the one that killed five Marines. And then a couple days later on Friday, a naval helicopter had what was described as a hard landing near El Centro. One sailor was sent to the hospital. I'm told he, you know, he was since released from the hospital and he's okay. Now, earlier in the month, we had an F-18 Super Hornet from Naval Air Station Lemoore in south of Fresno crash in the Mojave Desert, which killed the pilot. The the, uh, fighter jet is similar to the ones used in Top Gun. So there have been a string of mishaps involving both marine and naval aviation all out here on the West Coast. We've heard about problems with the Osprey. Can you remind us about those concerns? So the Osprey are kind of the backbone of um, of marine aviation. The Navy has also started using them a couple of years ago, so we see a lot of them all the time in San Diego. They have uh, dual rotors which tilt the aircraft so it can take off and land like a helicopter, but then fly like an airplane. There uh, were several fatal crashes when the aircraft was being tested. Um, there were also a series of crashes, mostly in dusty conditions, after the aircraft was introduced in 2007. But they've uh, been pretty reliable since then. All of the recent crashes uh, were during training. No word on whether the Osprey was uh, taking off or landing when the crash occurred. Are any similar problems with the other aircraft involved in these crashes? 
I mean, all of these are kind of older airframes. They, they're pretty well tested, um, and there's not a lot of similarities between the three of them. I mean, one's a helicopter, one's a tilt rotor aircraft, and the third is a, is a fighter jet. So they're, they're not very similar at all. Have naval aviation operations been suspended across the country? Yes, from what I'm told, all non-deployed air units are, are taking a one-day pause to review safety procedures today. So uh, things will seem a little quiet in parts of San Diego. All Navy units will have to do the same thing, including those on aircraft carriers and attached to bases around the world. But uh, deployed units can pick when they do the pause based on the, uh, you know, the needs of the operation. I'm told it's to call it a pause, not a stand down, but uh, safety stand downs are incredibly common. They usually happen after a major incident, like after the crashes of the USS McCain and USS Fitzgerald ship collisions in the Western Pacific a few years ago. What's uh, unusual is the driver here is the number of crashes in California so close together. At the moment, there's you know very little to connect a, a helicopter and a hard landing with an Osprey and an F-18 fighter jet. So, you know, they're just all very different. What about marine aviation? Are uh, the Marines taking a safety pause too? Well, there's been no word from the Marines on whether they're going to do the same thing. Now, Naval Aviation is headquartered on Coronado. Their air boss is the one who called for the safety pause. So the Marines have their own chain of command and they'll have to decide on their own. Can you tell us a little more about what a safety pause entails and what will these aviation details be doing? What makes it so uh, kind of difficult here? Since they haven't finished the investigation into any of these crashes, they really can't tell pilots and air crews specific details about what to look for. They instead will review safety manuals. Each commander will have to decide how to handle it, whether it will be a meeting in the hangar or you know some classroom tutorials or even a video. Uh, but they'll have to report up the chain of command that every single unit did this. Does taking a safety pause to review proper procedures, does that indicate that the Navy believes flight crew errors were involved in these crashes? Oh, there's, there's no way to tell. I mean, the only thing that really happened, the only thing linking these things together is California desert conditions. You know, the Navy and Marines log thousands and thousands of flight hours every year in those conditions. So it's really hard to say, you know, at this point, what caused each one of these crashes and, and what links them together, if anything. Normally, there are red flags go up when there are multiple incidents in the same aircraft that can lead to changes in maintenance procedures and new flight procedures. That happened when the Osprey, with the Osprey, a couple years ago, pilots were ordered to stop hovering for, for so long in dusty conditions because that dust was clogging the engine intakes. So they just don't do that anymore. Now, these recent crashes paint a pretty grim portrait of the risks involved in these kinds of flights. What does this do to morale? Well, I mean, that's one reason to take a pause is to kind of do a gut check among everybody. This will be a chance for commanders to talk directly to their air crews and their maintenance crews to make sure everyone is on the same page, that those every flight procedure is being followed. There's going to be nothing new during this pause because they have no new information. But this is a chance to just sort of like give everyone a heads up. Naval aviation, like aviation in general, is very safety conscious. They understand what can happen if there's the smallest error in the air or the smallest problem with maintenance, that it can lead to something really catastrophic. So this is a chance to get everybody to sit down uh, and just get on the same page. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thanks a lot. Thanks, Maureen.
Inflation shows no signs of slowing down. Numbers released Friday showed the consumer price index last month jumped 8.6 percent higher than a year ago, and that's the biggest increase since 1981. Also last week, the head of the World Bank warned that much of the world could be entering recession and potentially an economic condition called stagflation. Here to tell us more about what is happening with the economy and to explain some of these terms is Carolyn Freund. Dean of the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. Carolyn, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. So, on Friday, the Consumer Price Index shot up 8.6%. Can you explain what the CPI is and why it's so important to our economy? The CPI is an index of the prices consumers face. So, it's a basket of goods that consumers spend their money on. And it means that when you go to the grocery store or go to buy gas, the prices are higher by 8.6% for that typical basket of goods that consumers buy. And the impact then, the importance to our economy, obviously, is? Well, when prices are going up, that means your paycheck goes less far. So people, their real wage the amount of goods and services they can buy with their income is falling. So that's very bad for consumers. And it also leads consumers, if it continues, to front load their purchases. So imagine you think prices are going to keep going up. You want to buy stuff now. But that feeds into demand, raising prices even further. That's why inflation is such a dangerous phenomenon. And it's really important to stop it early because once it's in expectations, it's really hard to stop. And so what has been driving this high inflation? There are several forces that all came in together to cause the perfect storm. First, we had very, very easy monetary policy for many, many, many years. So that's the low interest rates that have been so great for investment. But that money is all out there. And then the second force is COVID, which caused supply disruption. There was less production out there. And then the third factor is this huge shift to goods away from services that happened during COVID. So instead of going to the gym, people were buying Pelotons. Instead of going out to dinner, people were remodeling their kitchens. So there was just this enormous demand for goods, but a limited supply at any point in time that could be produced. And then finally, finally, there was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that caused a surge in gas and food prices further feeding in to the inflationary pressures that we were experiencing. Here in the U.S., of course, we are all feeling that inflation. Has it increased at the same rate around the world? It has been high around the world. So that's one thing people point to when they say it's not just because of the U.S. monetary. And actually, also, I should have mentioned fiscal policy, all that money the government pumped in during the COVID crisis. It has been high around the world, but among industrial countries, it's tended to be higher in the U.S. It's shifting up now in Europe, but of course, they're facing more direct impacts as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the Fed is meeting later this week and most expect another rate hike, although we're not sure how much. What actions could the Fed take? 
Well, the rate hike is already basically priced in. So that's why the market is tanking today. Um, um, the main one is rate hike. The other is reversing some of the so-called quantitative easing that they had been doing for the past 15 years or so. So basically, they have been buying bonds and putting money out into the economy, and they will also start reversing that and continue. They've started a little bit. So is it a point of uh, choosing between recession and more inflation? Where's the hope, would you say, Carolyn? Well, there's this slim hope for what's called the Goldilocks landing, where the Fed stems inflation quickly enough that the economy slows down, but not so much that we go into recession. So we're also at a point right now of very, very low unemployment, which is, the, you know, at some point there were two jobs for every applicant seeking. So that means that there's pressure on wages to go up to attract these workers. And so the economy slows down. There's less pressure on wages. We might see a small tick up in unemployment and inflation slowly comes down. That would be the Goldilocks. It's very hard to do. And most economists are now expecting a recession late this year or early next year. Earlier last week, David Malpass, president of the World Bank, your former employer, warned about the possibility of recession and of something called stagflation. What is that and how does it differ from the inflation we're experiencing right now? So if people start to believe that inflation is high and going to remain high, there is this tendency to go out and buy more things. And it's very hard to reduce inflation at that point once it's built into expectations. So a period of stagflation is when you have stagnating growth and high inflation. And it's just very hard to get it out of without, again, pushing into recession. So in what you're seeing today, are some countries more susceptible to stagflation than others? This is, uh, I hate to use this word because it's so overused these days, but this is such an unprecedented time and an unprecedented shock. So I think one problem is we look back on the 1970s and say, oh, what happened then could happen now because there are similarities. There was an oil shock then. There's an oil shock now. But there are also big differences. There was no COVID crisis. And there had been a period of high government regulation, which then was followed by deregulation. Now it's the opposite where we went from a period of extraordinary deregulation to one where now governments are acting. So it's really hard to read the tea leaves right now. Carolyn, what is your biggest concern for the world economy right now? Gosh, I have so many, it's hard to say. I think um, a big resurgence of COVID would be the absolute worst thing. So I'm still more worried about COVID and the war in Ukraine than the standard economic issues happening, though it'll, you know, it'll depend on how our policymakers do. I've been speaking with Carolyn Freund, dean of the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. She also was a global director of trade investment and competitiveness at the World Bank. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. San Diego is hosting thousands of scientists, researchers, and pharmaceutical executives this week at the Bio-International Conference at the Downtown Convention Center. Some of the top names in biotech will be there, but many of them will not have to travel far. And that's because San Diego has become one of the biggest biotech centers in the country, perhaps even the world. So biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen took this opportunity to trace the life science explosion in San Diego, how and why it happened, and if it will last. Joining me is biotech reporter for Stat News, Jonathan Wosen, who comes to us from the Bio International Convention. And Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. How does San Diego rank as a life science research hub compared to other areas of the country? Most people would say San Diego is the third uh, top life science hub here in, in the U.S., and that's behind typically Boston and the San Francisco Bay Area, roughly in that order. So, you know, there are these various rankings based on number of companies, number of people, amount of uh, venture capital, investment money flowing into the region. So it, it's definitely become, you know, one of the things San Diego is known for in the same way that we're known for defense, in the same way, you know, that we're known for tourism. We also have, you know, biotech and, and tech as a big piece of, of the county's identity. Can you give us an idea of how many people work in biotech here? Yeah, so most estimates put it at around 70,000, um, and that works out to be about one out of every 30 employed San Diegans. So if you think about it, that's that's a whole lot of people, people you may you know, pass by in the grocery store, and people who are living in your apartment complex. And the salaries in biotech are pretty much over the average of a usual San Diego salary, aren't they? Yeah, they usually are. Uh, average income for a biotech worker in San Diego County is around $130,000. Um, so you can compare that to you know, household income in the county, which I think is closer to around $80,000. Uh, that, that's one of the interesting pieces here that you've got this you know, well-educated, well-paid workforce that keeps getting bigger and bigger and has an increasing presence. Um, so as we think about questions like, you know, who can afford to live in San Diego, uh, that's going to be, I think, an important piece to pay attention to. And one of the things uh, you don't normally think about, but you write about, is that uh, biotech facility deals now make up many of the real estate deals in the county. Yeah, nearly half of larger real estate deals, so 20,000 square feet or more, uh, are life science related these days. And, and that was not true 10 years ago. I mean, this has really gone up to the point where it, it's 
uh, you know, you talk to all the developers, all the real estate brokers, and uh, they're seeing a huge amount of demand for space right now in the life sciences. How did San Diego emerge as a biotech center? Can you trace it back to one idea, one company? Absolutely. One idea, one company, uh, and that company's name would be Hypertech. So basically back in the late 1970s, there was a young oncologist from Stanford whose name was Ivor Royston, who came down to UC San Diego to be an assistant professor. Uh, And he brought with him this understanding of how to grow what are called monoclonal antibodies. So these are antibodies uh, that are all identical because they're all made from a particular individual immune cell. Uh, And so his thinking was, well, this seems really powerful because if you can make a ton of really pure antibody, maybe you can use that to diagnose disease. That became the basis for a company called Hypertech, started in 1978, uh, started at a time when people weren't really starting companies in academia. The focus was was still more on quote-unquote pure research. So he got a little bit of pushback from his colleagues, but uh, ultimately they they did well. They created the PSA test, the prostate-specific antigen test, which a pretty big chunk of the country will get at some point in their lives. So, you know, they were ultimately bought by Eli Lilly, bought by Big Pharma in the 1980s. Uh, And then something really interesting happened. Uh, They didn't, you know, the hypertech folks didn't really like being part of Big Pharma. The the culture was more stiff and rigid. It wasn't as fun and freewheeling. So they all left. And a lot of them started their own companies. And then when those companies got bought out, uh, or you know, succeeded or failed, they started companies again and again and again. So there's this whole process of serial entrepreneurship. They got sparked out of that original company, and you know, well over a hundred companies that uh, have since been formed can trace their roots back to Hypertech in some way. Uh, so that's sort of the origin story in a nutshell. And, and ever since then, you know, that those success stories have attracted more venture capital. They've attracted more. Uh, people to the region uh, and academia has really pivoted too in terms of actively uh, trying to work with biotech Um, you know UCSD has a space called the Center for Novel Therapeutics where UCSD researchers literally work you know side by side with um, industry folks Um, there are industry academia symposiums where uh, they get people together across uh, that divide to talk about new ideas it all dates back to hypertech. Well, Jonathan, are there challenges ahead for the future biotech growth in San Diego? Yeah, yeah, no, there, there definitely are. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. In the short term, there's something happening in the sort of stock market right now where biotechs in particular are being hit hard. So a lot of publicly traded companies are struggling. It's unclear exactly how long that'll last. That's a subject everybody has different opinions on. But even beyond the immediate market, yeah, there are all these big picture issues like where do you put everybody? So I mentioned we talked a little bit about real estate, but at the moment, if you're a biotech company looking for space, you're going to have a really hard time finding it because vacancy levels are at historic lows and rents are at historic highs. So where are you going to put everybody? There's a question of can you actually keep people in San Diego? Are they going to leave to other smaller up-and-coming uh, innovation, life science communities. Yeah, I spoke with a guy 
uh, who, was, who was chief financial officer of a company that used to be in La Jolla. They ultimately ended up leaving April of 2021, moved all the way to Florida about 2,600 miles away, and, and he says they're not coming back because it's the you know, quality of life, uh, cost of living are way better where they are now. So, you know, you have to deal with that on, on, on some level. Um, and I think, you know, related to that, uh, it'll be interesting to see what impact, you know, the growing biotech workforce as this well-paid, you know, well-educated uh, group of people in the community, what, what that does to um, sort of general access to housing um, and the way the city continues to grow and develop. So a lot of questions, a lot of open questions, and a lot of things to track there. And a lot of things to talk about at the Bio International Convention. I want to thank Jonathan Wozen. You're right in the middle of it. And thank you so much for speaking with us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. As families across San Diego County celebrate their graduating students this month, there is one celebration that stands out. It's a class of just about a dozen graduates who have overcome homelessness and created true hope for their futures. So go off and make us proud, but more importantly, make yourself proud. Thank you. Afira DeVries is CEO and president of the Monarch School in Barrio Logan. The school has almost 300 students in kindergarten through 12th grade, all of them without stable housing, often living in a car or with family or friends. So graduation is a significant accomplishment and celebration, as DeVries told me. We've got 13 kids that are leaving us to enter into adulthood through post-secondary education or career but all of our students here at Monarch are dealing with the condition of homelessness. All of our kiddos have survived a life that has had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of trauma at the heart of it, at the core of it. And so when our kids hit milestones like these, they're substantial. This is a special year because this particular class is the class emerging from the pandemic. So when you think about the compounded trauma of suffering, the distance of that experience, the pandemic experience, and the condition of homelessness, these are kids that have demonstrated the kind of resilience that I hope inspires everybody that knows of them. The Monarch School has been a part of San Diego for more than 35 years. What started as one small classroom in 1987 has grown into a national model for children just trying to live and learn. This is the most unique construct, if I do say so myself, in the United States. We're the only of our kind because not only do our children come here and get access to scholarly learning, they are wrapped around with a really substantive and robust not-for-profit profile of social care programs. So our kids and their parents and their caregivers come here and receive everything from clinical mental health support to social work and case management to housing supports to help them become stabilized and even right to things like um, showers and laundry facilities. Everything that you could possibly expect or need in order to try to stabilize the family, you can find here within the four walls of this school, which is a pretty special setup. 18-year-old Rosario Alvarez is this year's valedictorian. My first language is Spanish. I raised with uh, my family. My, my family is Mexican, so I speak more Spanish. 
Rosario has learned English along with economics and engineering, crossing the border from Tijuana every school day for the past four years. Her mother is not legally able to cross. Rosario worked with a school advisor to write the speech she delivered at graduation last Thursday. The words are powered by her passion and the love for her mother, who is a single parent. I want to start by thanking each of you for being here. I am taking a solid step into the future. I, am, I have planned. I am happy to find out more about who I am and what I'm going to do to continue to support the world. That is why I propose fellow graduate look at who we have next to us at this very special moment, because today we are all part of this new generation. I want to thank my mother who has supported me, cared for me, and loved me, because for her it was possible today. Thank you to my family who is always willing to help me. I want to thank my boyfriend who is the person who showed me true love and helped me through adversity. I also want to thank those who cannot be here today, but who was there when it was necessary. Thank you teachers for making me part of this family that is really looking for a positive change in the world. Thank you God for making me for making all things possible. I am proud of myself because it wasn't easy, but I did it. I am one step forward, and that makes me feel grateful. Congratulations, class of 2022, because today is the beginning of a new stage. Thank you. Students at Monarch meet the same state requirements as students anywhere in California and get quality education with so much more, according to CEO DeVries. Everything will always come down to two very specific interventions. One is the inspiration of self-belief in a child as young as you can get to them. Right? The children who walk in this door, the younger they are, the more capacity we have to help them understand that their circumstances are temporary, but their potential is forever. That is a critical component of our work, and it's a critical component of the way we impact students. The other piece of it is education is, has always been, and will always be a ticket to a better life. And that's why it's been so important for us to build that belief system within our students and help them recognize that no matter what they face after today as graduates, they are equipped and armed with the tools to be able to stabilize themselves and break the cycles like Rosario's mom wants more than anything. The monarch butterfly is everywhere on campus, a clear symbol of what happens in this safe space created for students who need it most. Why is the butterfly the symbol of our school? It's because it's about metamorphosis, right? It's about recognizing that change is inherent to life and how you embrace change in order to become something beautiful is what we're here to do. Every member of the Monarch School class of 2022 will continue their education this fall with plans to attend Southwestern College, City College, Grossmont College, and Barber College. Rosario Alvarez will be at Southwestern to start a career that she hopes leads to becoming a criminal attorney someday, representing the homeless and giving back to the community she came from. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. 
That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. Last week, San Diego Repertory Theater announced it would be suspending all productions and laying off its entire staff because of a financial crisis. But that may not be the only issue the rep is facing. On Friday, the cast of its recent show, The Great Con, released a statement on social media alleging racism and misogyny at the rep. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the rep's founder and artistic director, Sam Woodhouse, about these recent events. Sam, earlier this year, you had announced that you would be retiring from the San Diego rep in September. But now we have this announcement that the rep is closing. So what is happening right now with the theater? We are suspending operations, which means that we are laying off our entire staff as of June 19th, regrettably, and we are canceling the remaining three productions in our 2022 subscription season for multiple reasons. But that is what's happening, and we are have already formed a brain trust, if you will, to think about how we might be reborn and rise again as a more fiscally stable and stable organization that does the art that we remain committed to. From the outside, this seems like something that happened very abruptly. But what kind of led up to this? And how long ago did you feel like this was something that might be happening? Well, first of all, let me let me speak to the reasons that we are saying this happened before I get into any detail. We're facing serious financial issues, which means a cash flow crisis. We have been challenged to produce and present programming in the basement of an active construction zone for over a year that's going to continue for some indeterminate amount of time, at least until 2023. We have suffered a significant loss of ticket sales due to the pandemic and perhaps our geographical situation. And we have been operating simply at an expense level above what we have proven we're able to generate in revenue. In some ways, the simplest way to look at it is we have spent more money than we brought in. And in the past few months, we have, we launched a quiet campaign, fundraising campaign. We were unable to secure the lead gifts we needed for that campaign to be successful. The rep has been producing theater here for almost 50 years. What can you remind people about when this started? What was kind of the impetus for starting this theater? And what kind of a a theater landscape was there 46 years ago when it started? 46 years ago, no one was producing plays by writers who were alive. And there was very little work being done by writers who were writing plays about the world that we lived in at that time. Most of the plays were about a different time. And many of the plays were about New Yorkers and their issues. We wanted to, from the very beginning, make a theater for San Diego that we didn't see existed yet, but we thought it might come into existence. 
was a true metropolitan city that in which many different kinds of people ran into each other downtown on the streets. We wanted to be downtown. We wanted to be part of the downtown renaissance that happened with the building of Horton Plaza and the explosion of the Gaslamp Quarter. We wanted to make a theater for the people of San Diego, make plays with San Diegans about the community that we live in. We wanted to embrace and nurture the multiple voices of diversity in our community and with an ongoing commitment for radical inclusion. We wanted to make the Lyceum from the very beginning a cultural town hall where all the people of San Diego felt welcome. So community has been at the center of all of our work. Citizenship has been at the center. I, I was born and raised in San Diego County. I believe I am an artist citizen and our theater has been a gathering of citizens who together are sharing work that's hoping to uplift the consciousness of the community towards a more enlightened, progressive point of view. And you are maintaining your lease on the Lyceum space. So does that mean you are still going to have some expenses moving forward? Yes. There will also be, I at least in the first step forward, as we've been able to imagine it so far, a lot of the work will be done by volunteers. Our, our board of trustees are volunteers. There are other volunteers in the community who've come out and said, what can we do to help that we're going to be reaching out to? And there will be some extremely limited paid hourly staff to maintain the viability and of the, the organization to keep the organization's doors open, so to speak. And we'll, we, we will be presenting activity in the Lyceum periodically, limited activity based around the construction schedule, which is quite extensive given that there are exterior renovations and interior renovations on the docket. And you had announced your retirement back in February that you were planning to retire in September. At that point in time, did you have any sense that the financial issues at the rep were going to lead to this result? No, I really did not. I really did not. I was looking forward to directing a final show in the season, for me at least in the season, uh, a musical version of Twelfth Night and looking forward to a retirement party at some point. And I'm certainly not directing Twelfth Night the Musical now. That's had to be canceled. And as far as a retirement party, we'll, we shall see. So no, the answer is no, I did not. With the rep going on hiatus, what do you feel the arts community is losing in San Diego by not having that theater company here? Well, the, we, we are a platform for and a, a, a host for the multiple voices of our community. And we present with our productions 10 or 12 pre and post show events with partners. Uh, we present productions out in the community. My goodness, we have had a Latinx festival of new plays for five years, a Black Voices reading series for two years, a Hear Us Now series for one year of brand new plays, the Jewish Arts Festivals in its 28th, 29th year. And that's all in addition to our main stage season of six to seven works. We are a, a, a deeply embedded community organization, professional organization, deeply embedded in the community and with multiple partners and multiple platforms for expression. And that will be going on hiatus. 
After speaking with Woodhouse regarding the rep going on hiatus, a social media post was made by cast and crew from the rep's recent The Great Con. On Friday, actress Michaela Bartholomew and director Jess McLeod wrote an open letter critical of the rep that was posted on social media. In it, they say they were subjected to, quote, racism, misogyny, misogyny noir, discrimination and disrespect, racial profiling of hired artists, physical intimidation, and ill care following injury, unquote, while working at the rep. On Sunday, I asked Woodhouse if he wanted to reply to the social media post, and he read this prepared statement. Thank you. Um, first of all, we're very proud of the production of The Great Con, and particularly of the work of the company was the first rate production. Uh, I can say we remain committed to our mission to create work that promotes an interconnected community, nourishes progressive values and celebrates diverse voices. Our goal remains, and we have much work to do towards this goal, to become a fully inclusive, equitable, anti-racist, multicultural organization. San Diego International Fringe Festival wrapped 11 days of shows from around the world, the nation, and the county. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with executive director Kevin Charles Patterson after awards were given out Sunday night. Kevin, Fringe has not happened in San Diego for two years because of the pandemic. You just returned with 11 days of the festival. So how does it feel to have pulled this off? It's a little bit amazing that we pulled it off. It was very concerning knowing that we were going into this with such a small festival, but knowing that the surges have happened with the new strain makes it feel like we made the right decision to keep it small, keep it manageable, see how things were going to work. And I think that we are coming out of it with happy artists, happy audiences. And yeah, I think that it ended up being a complete success. And what was attendance like? You know from covering the festival for so long that it has a tendency to always be slower in the beginning. And then our, our audiences, I should say, spread word of mouth about the shows. And then the strong shows get really full and until there are just packed houses and we have to add seats. It's uh, fantastic. And how did this year compare to previous years in terms of the number of performing artists and the ratio of local to international? The ratio of artists is ideally for us 50 percent local. 25% national and 25% international. Well, because of COVID difficulties for people traveling, that uh, those numbers are way down. I think that the breakdown ended up being about 85% local and then a mix with the rest. So it was very different. Did anything strike you particularly different about this year or uh, more challenging coming back after a two-year break? There's a couple things that are just so drastically different for us. And I've said this since 2019, losing Jacqueline Littlefield, who owned Spreckles Theater, had a huge impact on our ability to run a festival the way we had 
become accustomed. And the reason for that is while we were in the Spreckles Theater building, we were able to use any space that we wanted to use. And with losing Jackie, we ended up having to find a way to work outside of that space. Now we have to deal with organizations that often have to deal with red tape themselves. It makes it very difficult to make any kinds of decisions when there's multi-level processes to go through in order to have anything happen. Is how it feels. I think that's just a little frustration coming out. And is there anything that you learned from this year's festival that you are going to be using moving forward to planning next year's? We're going to have to learn how to deal with the city more to ensure more offerings for the public. So uh, we learned that we're going to have to deal with that. And that's okay. It's just a new process for us. And we have also learned that we need to make sure staff members get more time to just take a break. You had your award ceremony last night, and can you share what won the Best of Fringe? The Best of Fringe is no surprise to me. The votes came in, and it ended up being those crazy people from Japan, theater group Gumbo, with the production Are You Loving It? Kevin, thank you for talking about Fringe 2022. Lady, thank you so much. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Kevin Charles Patterson. A complete list of the awards is available at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. You can also check out the video playlist with highlights from the shows. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation. Presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.